0: Hi, I'm Tracy Wilkinson, and I'm not the normal host of the Talking Health Tech podcast. I get the opportunity, while Pete is on leave, hopefully sunning himself on a beach somewhere, to bring you one of my personal favourite episodes from a podcast that I've been co-hosting with Pete, the Life Sciences WA Investor Meets Innovator podcast. And it was a really hard decision to choose only two episodes. Only gave me two. But the first one that I'm going to bring you today is actually from the Managing Director of AuthorSelf. His name is Paul Anderson and this is a conversation that Pete had with him and it is a fantastic WA success story and that's why I really wanted to bring it back up to the top of your feed um, to tell this great story of an invention that spun out of the University of Western Australia, is still based in WA decades later and is now manufacturing sophisticated medical products, so regenerative medicine products for global markets, and they're doing that right here from Perth and has launched their first product I think in the last couple of years and things are looking bright. So it's a really good, it gives you a great understanding of what it takes to um, take a product all the way from an idea and a conception through to a reality that's actually positively impact, uh, impacting patients, and you can hear Paul choke up a couple of times in this episode when he talks about one of those um, one of those occasions and, and a specific patient that author sellers really changed their life. And the other thing that there's a, one great quote for me in this one, which was, "What you can do when you don't sell the baby." And the other thing I want to call out, and another reason that I chose this, is that I've never been involved in a life sciences conversation where someone talks about an offtake agreement, and that's like WA mining resources language, and that just makes me smile to bring to see that reflected in the life sciences sector. So, enjoy this conversation that Pete had with Paul Anderson from AuthorSelf. If you like this conversation, go back and listen to season one and season two of this podcast series.
1: Welcome to the Life Sciences WA Investment Series. Investor Meets Innovator. Hosted by Dr. Tracy Wilkinson and me, Peter Birch. In this limited podcast series, we've brought together a number of conversations with experts from medical science to finance to help demystify investing in biotech, medtech, and digital health, also known as the life sciences. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, seas and community. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. The information in this podcast is general in nature and should not be taken as a substitute for professional or financial advice. Welcome to the Life Sciences WA Investor Meets Innovator podcast. You're joined by Peter Birch and Tracy Wilkinson. Hello, Tracy, for another episode. Thanks for coming back.
0: Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me back.
1: Look, we've had uh, on this season of conversations in this podcast, we've covered a good amount of ground uh, from understanding the different sources of funding within life sciences, hearing some of those war stories, so to speak, of the inventors and the investors together in the same room. We learned about tech transfer and taking ideas uh, and bringing them to life. I'm going to continue this theme of really coloring in the the gaps and understanding life sciences and this time taking an idea beyond our shores in Australia and, and going global from someone who's definitely done it before tracy
0: yeah and doing it right now mm. the author Cell story is a great wa an australian success story really um another overnight success story decades in the making and paul was there at the beginning and he's still there now paul anderson is managing director of author Cell. so this is a real deep dive i think into what it takes to create and develop a life sciences opportunity for global markets i should probably point out that from my perspective, all of our life sciences companies are actually developing for global markets. It's too expensive and it takes too long to get <laughs> a product to market without going big, right? Cell is a great spin-out story from the University of Western Australia with Professor Minghao Zeng. Uh They're still based in Perth, just a few kilometres from where I'm joining you from today, actually. And they manufacture their regenerative medicine products here in WA and distribute them around the world. So really amazing conversations fascinating. Hmm.
1: Well, let's get stuck straight into it. Here's a conversation I had with Paul Anderson from OrthoCell. G'day, Paul. How are you going?
2: I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for coming onto the show. It's great to be able to hear a story firsthand and go through that journey of taking a life sciences company global and maybe looking at it a bit through an investor's lens. But firstly, if you could introduce yourself a little bit more, Paul, tell us who you are and what you do.
2: Yeah, so my name is Paul Anderson. I'm the managing director of AutoCell. I'm also the co-founder along with Professor Minghao Zeng. I've worked in the medical device space for over 25 years. I worked at the big end of town with regards to orthopaedic companies, joint replacements, capital goods, consumables in the early part of my career. Sold joint replacements and the like. And then I was very fortunate in the early 2000s to get involved in a brand new kind of space called regenerative medicine. And I was involved in the development of a product, the first cellular therapy for the regeneration of human cartilage tissue of the knee. And I did that in conjunction with Professor Minghao Zheng, and we grew that company to over $10 million revenue per year here in Australia and Asia. And then we sold that company for a five times upside to a large multinational American group. I stayed with that group for another 18 months and transitioned to the company Verigen as it was then into Genzyme and vice versa. But it was really through those experiences of being involved at in the early phase of regenerative medicine. And successfully executing on pretty much the first foray into that really led us then on to a greater understanding of musculoskeletal medicine and some of the unmet clinical needs that lay within that space. And so we began to realise that the bone, the nerve and the tendon market was actually a much larger market than the cartilage market. And there's equally unmet clinical needs in that space. So a device background, regenerative medicine story and history, and successful in really translating ideas and technologies from a university into a company and then really taking that to the commercialization phase. Mm. So that's a little bit about my background.
1: Yeah. Such an important thing too. We're so good at really early stage, particularly here in Australia of research coming up, but it's then taking that and getting it into clinics and to see patients and the commercialization side, that's really interesting. So does that then lead to what you're doing now with OrthoCell?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So AutoCell was born out of those previous experiences and again, both Prof um, Minghao Zheng and myself put our heads together and really felt that we had the market opportunity uh, but probably most importantly, that we had a suite of technologies that could really address these some of these unmet clinical needs, both in the area of stem cells, but also in the area of collagen-based medical devices. So there's no question about the experience that I've had in the past has really led towards the inventive steps in this company and the translational steps. And just because you have a great idea and an unmet clinical need, doesn't by any stretch of the imagination guarantee you a single iota of success. Really the success of OrthoCell stems around multiple facets as we'll discuss today. But really it's been able to jump across what we describe as the valley of death. The early phase is exciting phase about discovery and invention and market need. And then the really challenging phase is getting across this gulf between ideas, concepts, and actually getting products approved in market that are commercially applicable. And so that requires a multidisciplinary team, it requires funding, it requires faith, and it requires a lot of patience as well. So we're transverses of the value of death is really, you could put it in that way as well.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to unpack that a little bit more. If I think about then OrthoCell and that journey of taking something originally from I guess, like a research organisation and getting a a product to market. Are there like some key milestones or steps that you can unpack for us a little bit more and tell us what that journey looks like?
2: Yeah, it's not necessarily a simple pathway, but I I mean, I think the the key milestones obviously start with the discovery. Mm. Is there a need for what you're doing? Is there science that fits that need? And once you have that... Discoverability, and that, that's a very easy couple of sentences I've just said then, but for us that discoverability was a 15-year journey of discovery from working in a hospital system and being exposed to lots of surgeries, which I was in a previous life, through to developing ideas that fit what those clinical needs are. That discovery piece is very important, obviously. And then to have a successful company and to have be able to commercialise those operations and then to eventually globalise them, you really do need patentability. So you need the discovery and you need the patentability around that. You need to be able to corner certain expertise and markets within what you're doing to give you a foundation in intellectual property. And often one of the very first things that any potential acquirer or licensor will do is tick the IP box. Do you have a box? Do you have IP? Is there a degree of protection? And sometimes that patentability doesn't have to be the world's tightest best patent in the world, Mm. but you've got to have something. And patentability is a really important foundation in any business. And often an investor, the first thing they'll do is say, what patents do you have? So you need the discoverability. You need the uniqueness. You need the patentability. And then you need to be able to translate that. And this is One of the challenges is you move from a basic science approach into a translational science approach. And this is what's becoming a very hot flavour and topic in the country at the moment globally, is the difference between basic science research and translational research. And they do differ wildly. And sometimes it's very difficult for a researcher to get his head around moving from a basic science discoverability phase into the translational phase. And what I mean by that translational phase is, you know, is understanding what the scientific narrative is for the product or the process or the approach and then putting the meat on the bones for that scientific narrative. Let's validate what you're saying through science. And so there's a bit of a push-pull type scenario where you're pushing research to give you answers and you're pulling research into the commercial phase to give you answers as well. So there's a bit of a balance between that translational and basic science approach, which is sometimes difficult to negotiate and to navigate, but really super important and absolutely critical to the ability in today's world to translate something into a commercial product with some value. Discovery, patentability, translation, validation of scientific narrative. But also some of the key milestones, you must have a business plan. You must have a business model that can apply to a space or a niche. And that business model needs to be attractive not only to yourself with your own bias, but also to the outside Mm. people such as the investors. And so that that modelling is a really fundamentally important part of your development pathway. You need to know who you are. You need to know who the market is and you need to know that your model is robust enough to provide opportunities for people to invest, to make money and for us to make a different to people's lives at the end of the day. So, you know, they're just some of the things. And then obviously from that comes the key milestones around funding, the venture capital money, the government grant, the retail investment, the institutional investment, all different sort of scenarios that are tailored towards different milestones or development phases within the company so that's really some of the key milestones yeah um, there's probably plenty more but I think from a structural perspective you know that sort of frames up a little bit about the pathway that one has to go down
1: and it's interesting you lay out those key milestones and that all makes sense but as you mentioned you know that first step might take twenty years and then there's time that a lot of time that needs to happen between many milestones and I imagine from a investor's point of view or any stakeholder for that matter, expectation setting is going to be really important. What have yeah. you found that journey yeah. like on that commercialization yeah. pathway?
2: Yeah, look, I think the word journey is an appropriate one. <laughs> yeah. And when I talk about 20 years, that's an accumulation of experience and good things come from accumulation of experiences and ideas. But your point there is a very good one about expectation and being very upfront about those expectations. And I think that certainly in life sciences and healthcare and regenerative medicine, and there's multiple different terms within this life sciences healthcare scenario, is that good things take time. And what it's really about is we know that the healthcare space, if you're in the right space, can be a very lucrative one financially and from a business model and plan perspective and that there's some time that you can benchmark against other things about the average time it takes to get a medical device to market, the average time it takes to get a biological medical device to market, mm-hmm. can be anywhere between 8 and 12 years. You know, a pharma product can be anywhere between 15 and 20 years to get it successfully through all of those phases. So it's really important that you align yourself with investors who understand that pathway or that are willing to learn about that pathway. And so some investors aren't right for life sciences. Some investors are patient. They're long term patient investors, you know, high conviction investors that really believe the upside is worth the journey. And some of the challenges we face in this country alone is that sometimes it's much easier to get value from going and digging a rock and looking at to see what what's underneath it and you dig a hole in the ground, you ship it off to someone else to do all the value adding. What we've tried to do here is to align ourselves with investors that understand the pathways and the stories in health sciences and life sciences. They also understand the time that it takes to get these outstanding opportunities to market. But there's also many other aspects of that kind of investment thesis that can be attractive and is attractive, such as making a difference to the world, making a difference to patient lives, adding cost effectiveness to treatments, to doing things a whole lot better than we've ever done them before, with more efficiency and, and more consistency and more predictability of outcome. And so it's really a very good question because it's very tempting to take cheap money, but it's really important to be very critical, just as critical of the money you take as it is of the technology that you develop. These are important pieces because if you get that wrong early, you've got the tiger on your back for the rest of your life. Mm. You need to have the right investors that are aligned with timing and approach to you. And so it's worth taking some time, I think, to investigate who they are and educating them and to engage at a deep level.
1: And to that point too, you mentioned a little bit earlier in this conversation there are different sources of funding as well and the types of funding that might come be it from venture capital or government funds or the, there's a plethora there take me through the ortho cell growth strategy and i guess the diversity of the funding that you've yeah. been able to sort and, and what that's meant for what you're doing
2: yeah no it's a, it's an excellent question and we've had to be nimble and we've had to be knowledgeable of the funding opportunities. And at each phase of the company, we've tapped into different avenues of funding that was commensurate with our development phase. And certainly, 10, 12 years ago, when Orthocell was getting up and running, the diversity of funding was not the same as it is today. We have a much more vibrant venture environment here in Australia than we have had previously. So we faced a number of Challenges and one of those challenges fundamentally was we had technologies that required some degree of good manufacturing practice (GMP) manufacturing processes to enable us to move into humans and to commercialise and regulate these products. Um, fundamentally, venture capital don't like or investors don't like investing in bricks and mortar. They want to invest in technology development. They want to invest in people and processes and, um, and outcomes. So, if you need a facility, a laboratory to grow, but no one wants to give you the money to do that, then okay, what alternative fundings do we have? And from an ortho cell perspective, we were very fortunate that we were able to align ourselves with a venture capitalist that came from a fund that was set up specifically to target pre seed or seed opportunities out of the university. So, inherently early opportunities. So, we aligned ourselves with a fund that was specifically targeted to companies like ourselves, early phase. More risk, longer term pathway to market. So there was already an alignment with those guys and them, and they had an alignment with us also. And so that ticked that box to start with. Secondly, to that was that I worked extremely hard with the then Labor government here in Western Australia to encourage them to invest. And this was prior to any formalized grant scheme by the government both probably federally and locally but I lobbied very hard and showed them the value that a small government grant for infrastructure around a GMP facility what that could mean to us as a company and what that could mean to the people that are within that company and what that could mean to the state and national net national benefit is very important we're building infrastructure we're building talent we're building knowledge around intellectual property and products. And so Venture Capital Well Aligned, a government grant to help us build our facility, which we still use and house today, which is an outstanding facility which has stood the test of time and enabled us not only to develop not just the products that we have in market today, but also the products that we sorry that we started at the beginning of the company, but now products that we've also developed since then, all have taken the advantage of having this facility and for us to use. The venture, the government and then private funding before you you move into the more mature phase we accessed private funding and that private funding again is you know high net worth uh, type individuals again high conviction investment thesis people that are patient with their money and then of course we moved into a phase of development where we felt that we needed to access more capital more regularly more quickly to enable us to accelerate development of our company and so then we went into the public markets and then within the public market there's a range of different investors as well you've got your retail investors you've got your institutional investors you've got your high net worth investors so again the public markets bring a whole range of different costs and problems with it as well which is probably for another discussion but it does give you access to more readily to capital sometimes at a cost But it does give you that access to enable you to then accelerate your technologies. And of course, last but not least, the R&D tax scheme that we have here in this country, you know, is an outstanding scheme, one that has really been very beneficial to us in continuing to develop our technologies, continuing to develop our infrastructure around the development of those technologies, and really with a view to maintaining that manufacturing and maintaining the intellectual property within this country for our net national benefit, not for others' benefit.
1: I want to dive into that last point that you mentioned around keeping the IP locally and the value around that. But building on this point that you mentioned around value, because you talked about demonstrating the value to these investors as we go, particularly, I imagine, in a space where We know life sciences, the pathway is long to demonstrate the end financial return from an investor's point of view. So, being able to communicate clearly as we go the value of the initial investment they've put and whatever might be there. Another really important outcome or value from a healthcare point of view is patient outcomes. And it's being able to communicate, I guess, the impact that an innovation might have from a patient's point of view. So, do you see some value in being able to communicate some of these patient stories or engagements with investors to demonstrate the value of the health outcomes and impact.
2: Yeah, look, I think that that's a very important part of the process. I think in engaging with your investors to empower your investors to understand what you're doing, number one, and then to see the impact that what they're investing in and what we're trying to achieve has on at a patient level. And so, I think one needs to be careful, considerate, and also very strategic in how you deploy your patients and how you deploy that knowledge. And one wouldn't want to be seen to be exploitative of them. And I'm very conscious of that. And so when you're using patients as advocates, it's because of their enthusiasm. It's because of the difference you've made to their life. It's because of the real impact that we've had from a socioeconomic perspective that resonate the most. But of course, we are all emotional people. And emotion is something that we all gravitate to whether we like it or not. And in healthcare life sciences space, inevitably that emotion comes into play because you are making differences to people's lives. One example of that is our patient Adrian. I don't know whether you want to talk about Adrian now, but Adrian is a patient that we treated in a pioneering approach. And so one of our products is designed to join nerves together without the use of sutures and damaging use of sutures to pull these nerves together. And we can do that in a faster, more efficient, more predictable uh, way that gives consistency of outcome to the generation of human nerves within the body. And the patients that we're talking about are patients that have had either crush injuries or spinal injuries that have resulted in paralysis of their limbs. And so we've pioneered a technique with fantastic patients, brave surgeons and outstanding technology, where we can now treat in tetraplegic patients. And these are patients that have had catastrophic neck injuries but can still breathe, right? So they're still able to breathe, but they can't use their arms. They've got paralysis of their arms, tetraplegic, quadriplegic patients. So we're taking nerves from their thoracic and axillary area under their armpit And we're replugging those nerves back into the muscles to innovate those muscles to give them movement back in their arms Mm. and to turn paralyzed limbs into limbs that can function. Now, Adrian was a patient that was wheeled into the doctor's rooms by his wife when we first encountered him, couldn't use his wheelchair. Almost two years to the day after that surgery, that using our product and the surgeon's pioneering approach of nerve transfer, that patient drove his own car down to our facility to talk to, my, to our staff, really, right? Yeah. This patient can now pick up his phone. He can operate an iPad. He can transfer himself from one chair to another. He can drive a car, as I mentioned. His activities of daily living are greatly improved. But you know what he said to me? He said, Paul, all of that's wonderful. But the biggest outcome that I got from this surgery is that I can now hug my wife and I can hug my children, mm. and wow. that has returned my mental stability, right? Wow. Super amazing technology, incredible patience that, whether you like that or not, that is a heart-rendering story that brings a tear to my eye just about every time I tell it, regardless how many times I've told that story. So the impact that you have is important. It does resonate. And people want to know what are you doing, right? And so you have to be bold, you have to be adventurous, but at the same time you need to be respectful.
1: Such a good balance. When you can communicate that impact with such conviction, as you say, it really puts it all in perspective and demonstrate what it's for and can it, certainly build that advocacy, yeah.
2: Yeah, it really does. And I think just to finish that that question off a little bit, so we've spoken about patients as our advocates, and that's one element really. At the end of the day, there are other kind of end-user style people that you can talk to. Number one, the surgeon, right? So the surgeons are extremely well respected and quite rightly so in this country and other countries in the world. And those doctors are at the coalface on a daily basis. They see that areas where they're not doing very well, they can do improve. And having a surgeon advocate on your behalf about the multitude of benefits that you can possibly have as i've mentioned cost economics reduction in surgery time improvements in outcomes greater predictability consistency of outcome leading towards a successful approach you know so the surgeon's important and i think it's also important that At certain times of the development of your company and your technology and your processes that you bring your scientists into the loop as well Mm -hmm. you know there are times where some investors want to hear that the science is real that these people are real that the scientific narrative is one that's real and backed up with evidence so it's important particularly I find at the early phase of your development that scientific that medical validation is really important and fundamental parts of your journey must be to validate your story with those types of people right don't wait till the end to validate your story validate early there's no point going to a doctor eight years into the journey and saying hey this is what we've got and he says to you geez it would have been good if you turned left here Mm. instead of kept kept keeping on the like five years ago so engagement With those types of people of dual usage is one for your own sanity and your own ability to drive these technologies but also as advocates to your potential investors so doctors Mm. patients scientists and other advocates that you can find through government or any other channels really important parts of developing a story that is a successful one and a saleable one
1: yeah So many stakeholders in healthcare, right? So having that, uh, spinning all those plates and keeping that communication expectations front of mind always is really important. Hey, you brought up this really interesting point, start to round out this conversation, but you brought up this really interesting point a little bit earlier around, I guess, the value of keeping IP locally in WA and or in Australia and particularly WA and building out, I guess, a growth strategy from that doesn't just benefit the business, but also that the state. So tell me a little bit more about your thinking around making, like the importance of keeping a lot of this IP local.
2: Yeah, so fundamentally, and let's start here in Western Australia, and this is a very basic fundamental, is that we suffer from what's called a two-speed economy in this state. Bear with me here, I'll get back into the IP, but the two-speed economy, right, where we dig a lot of stuff out of the ground, we shoot that overseas, We benefit from not much else other than digging it out of the ground. Mm. And so that we're, and because of our enormous wealth in that area, we see that we're immune to some of the global downturns and some of the global um, economic impacts and negatively uh, to this country because we've got such a robust mining industry. But what we find is that below that is things aren't so well. And so what's really important in my view is that companies in this health space and life sciences space where in Australia we have a lot of talent and we do have a lot of this IP generation, but what we probably haven't done is turned that into successful manufacturing stories. And to have a successful manufacturing story, you need to have good IP that protects that and you need to have good IP around products that are valuable and desired. And you've heard me mention a couple of times this net national benefit piece. And we're fierce defenders of our ability to manufacture locally here at cost effectiveness in the globe and i think that the sentiment is now that you know australia is a fantastic place to manufacture high quality goods there's less enthusiasm to manufacture in the likes of china and india at this moment and so australia is seen as a cheaper place to manufacture than the us and as a place that has the expertise and the competency to do intellectual property is an extremely important part of the value generation, not just in the products for today, but for tomorrow as well. And then to extend that into high quality manufacturing capability, which has a foundation through your intellectual property. You may hear my voice, but I'm really passionate about this. And not only am I passionate about manufacturing, but I'm passionate about what happens within manufacturing. And so we're talking about an ecosystem development here, about contributions to quality assurance. Expertise, quality control expertise, regulatory affairs expertise, manufacturing expertise, GMP cleanroom expertise. So we're talking about adding along with the manufacturing, adding along with the intellectual property that supports that manufacturing in those products, expertise that lie within that. And all of those pieces contribute to the ecosystem, whether they work for OrthoCell or they eventually go and work for other companies, and we Mm -hmm. applaud that, right? We are educators of young scientific graduates and others who sometimes don't understand where they're going, but we can provide a really strong career pathway through this manufacturing process, through quality control, quality assurance and those other aspects that I spoke about. Ecosystem development, manufacturing locally, all underpinned by solid intellectual property that we maintain here in this country don't sell the baby
1: yeah like you say you can hear the passion in your voice about this and it's i hear you and many would agree that is just something that needs to happen what would you like to see be done particularly in wa to take that from something that we agree needs to happen to something that actually happens? I guess it's to those points that you said, which is investment in the education side and Mm. those decisions that get made around manufacturing, consider what's done locally, that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, I think we're in a really unique position here in Western Australia at the moment. I believe that we have a growing critical mass of expertise around the ecosystem. And most importantly, what we've seen now is strong support from the state government, a really strong understanding about this two-speed economy. A really strong desire to make a difference to life sciences here. The government's put their money where their mouth is, and that is this future research, future health research and innovation fund that the government's put together that's now devoting resources to funding some of these startups, and also looking at funding some of the infrastructure required to help these startups move through that valley of death that I spoke about. And I think it's a unique position. I applaud the state government, and not being political, but they've really done a great job in listening to industry, recognising that there is a critical mass here at the moment and that now is a great opportunity and time for us to develop further that our life sciences community and the opportunities that come from that and funding of basic research funding of translational research funding of infrastructure that's going to help translate these pieces and a fund that is operated outside of health outside of the state health department scenarios that gives it a degree of independence a degree of agility and an unbiased approach if you like and I'm not being critical of health they do a wonderful job this is probably a different sphere and I think we're in a really good position in this state to continue to leverage all of the great minds that we have here to invent and all the great minds that we have here to translate.
1: Exciting times indeed. And then lastly, Paul, I guess leveraging that excitement and the position that we're in, what can we expect to see from OrthoCell in the coming years? Where's your priorities at and what's the future for the company?
2: Yeah, look, it's an excellent question and one that brings a smile to my face. (laughs) I know it's a podcast and you can't see that, but I am smiling. (laughs) Uh, so, look, we find ourselves in a tremendously exciting phase. We've just recently done, for want of a better term, an offtake agreement with a large, I'm using mining terminology in the life sciences space. <laughs>
1: You're in WA, uh, we can I'm uh, in WA, you.
2: That's right. So, we've <laughs> recently signed an off-take agreement with a large multinational American company called BioHorizons who are 66% owned by a group called Henry Schein, one of the largest dental companies in the world. And so one of the products that we've developed is in the dental space, it's for guided bone regeneration. They paid us 23 million Australian dollars upfront for an exclusive global license and distribution agreement. That is an outstanding effort on our behalf, if I may say so, to attract that kind of quality partner And for them to put their money down on the table to gain exclusivity shows that there's a wonderful validation of our technologies, there's a wonderful validation of our management and it's a wonderful validation of our manufacturing because now our job is to manufacture for that company and to provide them with their global products globally. So we have successfully developed the product, had it regulated internationally and now we have an agreement in place for us to... Access the market through our partner, but to continue to manufacture for them. So, really exciting times for us to see that grow, and so the manufacturing base here in Australia grow. And we've just scaled up our operation from ten thousand units per year to a hundred thousand units per year. Wow. Uh, we've just employed four new staff to help manage that, and that's for our partner overseas. So that's a really one really exciting element of what we're doing. And then the second element, if I may is the really exciting work that we're doing with our nerve repair product called Remplier and our drive for that into the Australian market we're now approved in the Australian market for peripheral nerve repair we're also reimbursed in this country in the private healthcare system for peripheral nerve repair and we're now driving the product through a regulatory process into the United States and so these are very high value markets high value products that we've developed and are developing and we see more more licensing deals on the horizon. We see potentially mergers and acquisition and licensing. So it's an exciting time for our company. Well validated. We own our own manufacturing. We have the expertise to grow that, and we're well funded. So um, you know, really exciting times for our company, and a strong drive to add to, as I said again, that net national benefit, and of course, mm. our shareholder value.
1: Well, that's right. You know, you like all of this positive movement and benefit for the different stakeholders involved obviously from a patient side but yes from an investor and shareholder perspective but also from an economic point of view particularly for WA as well in terms of jobs and facilities and resources so Paul I really appreciate you making the time to have a chat with us to take us through the journey today thank you so much
2: look it's my absolute pleasure and if i can just say one last thing and that is the altruistic view the idea of making a difference to people's lives fundamentally the driver get that right and you can pretty much you know, hopefully the rest will form the place so look very much appreciate your time today and thanks for listening to
1: this podcast has been brought to you by life sciences wa which is western australia's life sciences industry association in collaboration with talking health tech it's been made possible with funding support from the Western Australian government through the New Industries Fund and the Ready Initiative, managed by MTP Connect on behalf of the Medical Research Future Fund and with the support of And Health. If you liked this episode, please complete the feedback survey. There's a link to that survey you can access from within your podcast player. You can also follow Life Sciences WA on LinkedIn and Twitter or subscribe to the mailing list at lifesciencewa.com.eu.